0: if you would, for the reading of God's word. What a wonderful thing for us to be able to worship our God. Amen. We'll never grow old. We will do it for all of eternity. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 33, the Holy Scriptures read, The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, How much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. If you're not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you in your presence today, trembling with fear and awe at your wonderful glory. Father, you are worthy, you are holy, you are righteous. And on our own, we have no standing whatsoever to stand before you, let alone be called the children of you. So, Father, I just pray that you would speak through the foolishness of this preacher, through the foolishness of preaching, that you would use these words to edify your saints and bring glory to your name. I pray, Lord, that they would be your words, not mine, that I wouldn't add my opinions or my thoughts. That's not what we're here for. So, Father, I just ask that your saints would be blessed, that they would be encouraged, that they would leave today worshiping your name And fervently excited to live every breath that they have for your great name. We long for your return. We celebrate your first coming, but we are anxiously expecting your second. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we ask that when Christ returns, that we'd be ready for that day. That we wouldn't have spent our lives wasting it on silly things like work and entertainment and play that we would spend our lives preparing for eternity, which is to worship and glorify your precious name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Bow or burn. Bow or burn was the king's decree that went out to all the people. For if you did not bow and worship the image of this king, you would face the fury of the king in flames of judgment. For whoever refused to comply would be cast into the fires. And bow many did. Most, in fact, did. Thinking to themselves, as long as I refuse to bow in my heart then it doesn't really matter how I bow with my body. Others reasoned to themselves, would God really want me to suffer at the hands of such an ungodly madman? Many had similar thoughts that prevented them from refusing the decree. And though many did bow for three young men, they would rather be burnt alive than to denounce the true king. And so upon hearing the decree, these three young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, determined that no, they would obey God rather than men. And so when the call came to bow down and worship the idol of the king, these three men stood there in the midst of all, refusing to comply. When the king found out, needless to say, he was furious. He was livid. And so he had these three men brought before him and he thought, you know, I will give them one final chance. And so he warned them saying, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall to the ground and worship the image that I have made. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning fiery furnace. And then he even added insult to it. He said, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The young boys didn't need to think about it. They already knew their answer. And so they responded to the king saying, O king, we have no need to answer you. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Upon hearing this, the king was even more furious, and he ordered their immediate death. These three young boys were bound by the two strongest warriors in the entire army, and he then ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter. And then with the crowd watching, Hananiah, Mishael, And Azariah, because of their refusal to comply and worship a false god, were thrown into the fiery furnace alive. And why? Because they refused to bow. They refused to worship a false god. You know, when it comes to following the true and living God, if you've read your Bible even a little bit, you know it's a path of hardship It's not an easy breeze. And because this path is one of hardship, as Jesus told us in his sermon on the mountain, Matthew chapter seven, he said this, the gate is narrow and the way is wide that leads to life and few find it. You know why he said few find it? Because not many find it. Few find this path, which means many think they're on the path and they're deceived They're deluded. They're actually on the wide path. So when it comes to following God, then when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, we have a way of knowing whether we're on the right path or the wrong path. And part of that is following the path of persecution. And if we're going to follow the path of persecution, what does Jesus say we need to do before we get on that path? Count what? The cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. Jesus. It's not just saying a little prayer. There's a cost of following Christ. And that cost is persecution. Which means on the inverse, to not follow Christ is to follow the path of persecution-free pleasure and ease. So with that said, who's ready to sign up here? Show of hands. Who's Who's ready to suffer for Jesus? Who's ready to go through persecution for his name? Sounds great, preacher. I was just telling my wife the other day that things were getting a little too comfortable around here. I haven't felt pain for quite a while. So give me some of that. Is that how Christians are to think? Do we seek after hardship and suffering because there's some redemptive thing just in and of itself? Is that the end? Is that the goal? No, obviously not. We're not masochists. However, while we're not masochists, we are also not to fear or run from persecution either. And why not? Why are we not to fear persecution? Well, there's three reasons for that. And to answer that, we'll find those three reasons in Matthew chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 10, where we will see three reasons why we shouldn't fear persecution. And here they are one, because we're identified, two, we're loved, and three, we're protected. And so we should share the gospel without fear. We shouldn't fear persecution because we're identified, we're loved, and we're protected. If you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 24 through 25 of Matthew chapter 10. I'll give you a moment to turn there and then we'll read it. The way this works now, just a reminder, is I will put the slides up on the screen that are not in the text that we're studying, but I won't put up the text we're studying. That's why you need your Bibles. All right. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they then align those of his household? Jesus is making a really simple point. You don't need a seminary degree to follow this. What's the point he's making? He's saying, hey, you know what? If they hated me, Don't you think they're going to hate you? Because why? Because to follow Christ is to be a disciple of him. It is to be like him. And so to the degree that we are like him is is the degree to which they will hate us. Now, this is a sad thing because we are surrounded by so many professing Christians who fundamentally disagree with what I just told you. There's a lot of Christians out there who think, no, 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 that's, that's for other places in the world. That's for places where there's actual persecution going on. Here in America, here where we have freedom, you know what? If we are just nice, reasonable people, generally speaking, you might find a mean cuss out there, but they're going to like you. It'll be fine. You'll get along just fine with your unbelieving neighbors. But can I tell you something? That is absolutely not true. It's fundamentally wrong. And yet, evangelical Christianity has pretty much swallowed this lie, hook, line, and sinker, hasn't it? How? Well, a lot of ways, but one of the ways is without a doubt the way that so many churches around us do church. And I don't want to dog on other churches just for building up our own pride and ego. That's not my goal here. My goal here is to point us to Jesus' teachings. See, we are surrounded by so many professing Christians in our cultures who've swallowed the pill of pragmatism. What's pragmatism? You do it because it works. You know, the ends justify the means, baby. Let's just go with it because you get results. That's the the mindset here. And look at these verses and think, does that fit with this? Does this apply to us? If we do church in a way that is more sensitive to non-Christians, will they suddenly love us? Will they like us? Will they come to our services and enjoy our services? Will they like being here? Well, maybe we just we just need better music. We need more music that is, you know, catchy, it's got a beat to it, just you know, less on this doctrine thing. Let's just focus on singable songs that people can relate to. And another thing that will help preacher is your sermons. Could you make them more relevant? Maybe target felt needs. I know a lot of people have needs. I talk to my unbelieving friends and family and coworkers, and they have many felt needs. And so if you could speak to them on their level in a motivational way to help them with their felt needs, they would be more enticed to come. Also, if we could just lighten things up a little bit, maybe not have to get everything so deep and theological. Like, why? is like, this a seminary? Why would we got to be talking about the doctrines about attributes of God, these sorts of things. What are we doing here? I don't see that being very practical. And also, if we could talk a little bit less about this sin, death, and judgment thing, that kind of makes people uncomfortable. So maybe we could focus on the positive aspects of Christianity, which is how great your life could be if you added Jesus to it. Anybody ever hear that kind of talk? You don't need hearing aids to hear it. It's all around us. And when churches think this way, is it any shock that professing Christians start to live this way? When we think this way, what are we really doing? We're capitulating. What does that mean? It's mean we're, it means we're compromising. And what are we compromising? Biblical truth. Faithfulness to Christ. We're compromising our role as being a disciple of Jesus. For example, instead of believing what God says about sexuality, right now that's not very popular, is it? Not even a little bit. And so instead of that, we try to say, oh, you know what? God is what? Love. And so our view of biblical sexuality, before we realize it, has suddenly shifted to align less with Jesus and more with Freud or Dr. Phil. Instead of believing what God says about how he made the world, what do we do? We we mix them together and we go with Darwin on this. Or maybe we start to try to accommodate the common beliefs of scoffing unbelievers just because they have a PhD next to their name. The point here is simple. We desperately want what? To show the world, I'm not as foolish as you think. Yeah, I know a lot of really stupid Christians out there, and bless their hearts, right? Bless their hearts, but they just aren't. Quite as enlightened. And so we think, you know what? If I can show them my rationality, they will accept me. But it can't work. It won't work. Why? Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? now what's that name mean beelzebul well jesus there's a little complicated here but basically he's using some wordplay with satan being the master of the demonic kingdom and the darkness and him being the master of his kingdom and what he's basically saying is if they say i'm the devil what do you think they're going to say about you for following the devil He'd be called demon He'd be called evil and so if they call Jesus Satan, why on earth would you think you would get a free pass if you are a disciple of Jesus? The reality is, church, you won't. For if you have identified with Christ, then the world is absolutely going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're going to resent you. And why? Because you stand for the truth. You say, I will follow God rather than men. I will believe God's words rather than men's words. And that's absolutely offensive to them. The truth is not just offensive, it's it's repulsive to them. The truth, which is we know, right, it's actually good because it comes from God who is good. The truth is good and righteous and holy, but to them, they call it evil. They view it as offensive and wrong and dangerous And so, do you realize that the degree to which you are a faithful follower of Christ is the degree to which you will be hated by the world? Make no mistake, if you follow Jesus, you will be hated. And if you aren't hated, how can you claim to be a follower of Jesus? The truth is, this text doesn't let you do that. You can't. Jesus doesn't give us a third option here. He doesn't make this available to us. And so then we have a very serious question that we all as individuals need to ask ourselves here this morning. And the question is this. In what ways does the world hate me because I'm like Christ? And again, i need to make a little clarification here. If people hate you because you're a jerk for Jesus, that doesn't count. It doesn't. persecution, biblical persecution, only qualifies as persecution if you're being hated for Christ likeness, if you're being hated for godliness. Because the world hates godliness. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so if you are living a godly life, you are absolutely going to be like salt. Think Matthew chapter 5, or the light of the world, or the salt of the earth. We will be like salt in an open wound. People don't tend to appreciate salt in an open wound very much, do they? I know I don't. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't matter if it's helpful. Can I tell you a secret? Well, I'm going to tell you it anyways. If you live a godly life, not only are you going to irritate the world, but you're going to irritate the religious You're going to irritate people within the church who claim to be followers of Jesus. And why is that? Because many within the church are actually just as opposed to biblical truth as those outside of the church. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Why is that? It's because, and and hear me when I say this, here's what happens. People will use the church. They will use Christianity. They will use religion in order to live how they actually want to live. They use it as a means of actually serving themselves. They think like this. Okay, you know what? Here's how this works. God wants 10% of my money and you know, my life you know, all these sorts of things. They start thinking these kind of things. And they say, okay, God, you get this. I did my dues. And now this 90%? We're, we're set. That's for me. And you know what's going to happen when you come along and begin to poke at their idolatry with the word of God? They're going to like it. Not even a little bit. When you point out how that new book they got by that highly respected evangelical leader is actually spreading false and dangerous teaching, you're going to hear words like judgmental. You're going to hear words like nitpicky, and you're going to hear them faster than the Vikings leaving the playoffs. they are not going to like it even a little bit. When you speak God's truth in love, they are going to tell you that what you are doing is actually evil. Now, they might not actually call you Beelzebul or the devil to your face, but they might as well because that's how they're going to treat you and what you're saying. And why? Because you are actually identifying with Christ, and ironically enough, they're the ones identifying with Beelzebul. They're the ones identifying with the devil. It's the ultimate form of projection here, isn't it? Accuse your opponent of what you're actually doing. Evangelical Christianity is absolutely plagued with this disease right now. Seems like hardly anyone, and less and less voices, are standing up for the truth, because to stand up for the truth means you're going to be hated. means you're going to be despised. You're going to not just be considered wrong, you're going to be considered evil, for opposing what is good when it's actually the opposite. But this is what we signed up for. So if you are going to be a faithful follower of Christ, if you are going to be identified with him, you're going to get flack from a whole lot of people who claim to be identified with him, but actually aren't. You're going to get flack from many demises out there. Who is Demas, right? He left Paul because why? Because he loved the things of this world so much. You're going to get flack from the demises in the church. But in reality, these Demases have actually forsaken Christ because of their love of the world. What they have done then is they have repurposed Christianity to mask their love of the world. They've used it to kind of deceive themselves into this comfort zone where it's like, yeah, I go to church, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm good. But the reality is, they're on the broad path. And when you come and point them, this out to them, even a little bit, I'll tell you what you better get good at, and it's called ducking, because they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. For a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above their master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, what are they going to call you? In verse 24, probably most of your Bibles use the word servant, right? Look at your Bibles. Who who says servant there in verse 24? A lot. That translation actually really triggers me, and maybe not really, a little bit triggers me because it's not a good translation. The word there really means slave. It's not servant, right? Servant has this kind of softer connotation to it. In America, we don't use it because of our past history. That's one of the reasons why they translate it that way. But the word does mean slave, which is a much better description here of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to be a slave of Christ because being a follower of Jesus, right? If, if you're his slave and he's your master, that means Jesus isn't your life coach. It means Jesus isn't your advisor. He's not your counselor. It means Jesus is our slave master. And this is why over and over throughout the Bible, you see Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, and they all refer to themselves in the intro to their letters, right, in the New Testament. They're like, I'm a slave of Christ. I, Paul, a slave of Christ. I, Peter, a slave of Christ. I, James, a slave of Christ. Let me ask you, are slaves free to deviate from their master's instructions? No, they aren't. And so one of the side effects of being an actual slave of Jesus Christ is that you're going to be hated by the other runaway slaves who refuse to follow their master's instructions. Last week, we looked at verse 22 and verse 22 says this, what? It says, you will be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. Has being identified as a slave of Jesus caused you to be hated? Has it caused you to be hated by those outside of the church? Has it caused you to be despised by those inside the church who are using the church to mask their idolatry? Because if it hasn't, according to this passage, how can you actually claim to be a disciple of Jesus? A slave is not above their master. They hated me. They will hate you. The truth is the rebellious world hates the master and refuses to hear his voice and respond with obedience. And after all, I mean think about it. who wants to be a slave? It doesn't sound very enticing. Well, it doesn't at least until you come to understand one thing. How much this slave master loves his slaves. How much did Christ love us? Enough to be identified with us. That's how much. And because Christ loved us enough to be identified with us, sinners, we have yet another reason to not fear sharing the gospel in the face of persecution. And that leads us to our second point. We should share the gospel without fear because first, as we just saw, we are identified with Christ and second, we are loved. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. For even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not then, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So if you were here with us as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is back to talking about the birds again. All right? And what's his point here? Well, you remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter six, right? Jesus said this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the implied answer is yes, you are of much more value than they. And so Jesus is making the point again here that if our heavenly Father notices when even a sparrow, right, which is just this kind of measly, not very valuable bird, drops to the ground, don't you think he'll notice if we do? Yes, of course he will. He he has even the very hairs on our head numbered. And that's not because he just is bored and likes to count. It's because he's a good and loving father who loves his children deeply. How much does he love us? Beyond our wildest imaginations. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the deep love of God. and He says this, if God gave us his one and only son, what else won't he give us? If he was willing to do that... What on earth then could ever make us lose his love? Could tribulation? No. How about persecution? How about danger, distress, famine, nakedness, or sword? No. And then in verse 38 of Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I know we're just a few weeks here from Christmas, and maybe you came this morning hoping for a direct uh, Christmas sermon today. And if so, well, sorry, but you're going to have to settle for a Christmas point here instead. We're not quite there yet. And the point here we're getting at is this. It's the meaning of Christmas. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed his love towards us. He sent his one only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why did God do this? It tells us right there, because of his love for us. Scripture's full of this, and we're going to look at some of these in a little bit here during our attributes of God class, but Psalm one hundred thirty six twenty six says this Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Zephaniah three seventeen, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love, he will exalt over you with loud singing. That's how much God loves us. He he exalts over us with loud singing. And I know I appreciate the worship team and everything we have going on here, but I'd much rather hear that singing than anything we've got going on here. How about you? The Singing of a divine, all-powerful God who delights over us with loud singing because of his love for us. So many more verses we can look at here, but we'll have to wait on them. But you get the point here, don't you? One of the reasons we should share the gospel without fear is because of Christmas. Christmas is the ultimate display of the love of God who was born into our world as a precious gift given that he might die for us so that we can have the love of God. And because of this, what a wonderful reason to share the message of salvation without anxiety or fear. As verse 27 says, we should proclaim it from the rooftops. And we should do so because nothing, not even persecution, danger, or sword can separate us from the love of God. In Christ, our soul is ultimately protected. It doesn't matter what they throw at us. We are ultimately safe. This leads us to our third point. We should identify, we should share the gospel without fear because we are identified. Second, because we are loved. And finally, because we are protected. Verse 26. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And then verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When it comes to persecution, you realize the only thing the persecutors can throw at us is tearing down this physical body? That's it. That's all you got. Because if you, you all know this, but these bodies are already naturally being torn down all on their own. They're just speeding up the process a little bit with their persecution. That's all that's happening. The fact is, every single one of us has bodies that are wearing down, being tore down, that are dying. And so if my body dies a few blinks and a yawn short of what it would have, that's not quite as big of a tragedy, is it? It's just short in the inevitable. And it's not that big of a tragedy, especially when we realize what God soon has in store for these physical bodies. And what is that? Resurrection from the dead. In fact, as scripture tells us, he's going to raise Every body, believer and unbeliever alike, from the dead into immortal bodies. But the difference, some of those are raised in new bodies, eternal bodies, for eternal destruction, and some for eternal reward. John 5 talks about this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. And as verse 26 alludes to, on that day, the day of judgment, every hidden thing will be revealed. And when all is revealed, justice is going to flow down like waters by the one who will forever bring continual destruction both on the unbelieving body and soul in a place called hell. So what determines our outcome? On this great day. I'll look at verses 32 and 33. This is what determines it. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. These verses aren't complicated, are they? They have a very simple formula, and the formula is this. Confess before man, be confessed before God. Deny before man, be denied before God. That's the formula. And so to deny Christ is to then one day be denied by Christ. And to confess Christ is to one day be confessed by Christ. And being denied by Christ leads to eternal destruction. And to be confessed by Christ leads to eternal protection is full of this. Mark 8, 37 through 38. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And then also in Luke 12, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. On the day of judgment, there's one testimony that matters. It's not yours. It's Christ. That day, it's going to be too late for your testimony to matter. You've already made yours. And that day, he will testify. And on that day, he will either testify confessing you as his before his Father in heaven, or he will confess you as not his before his father in heaven. And that confession is contingent on your confession in this life. Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the same thing the rest of the New Testament is saying. And he's saying this, he is the only way of salvation. Confession to his name, that path is the only way to salvation. John 14:6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4:12 and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Christ or destruction. That's our options. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only path, for he is the narrow path. And to walk that path means to deny this world now by professing Christ as our Lord and Savior. It means to trust in Christ as our refuge. Not to trust in the cares and comforts of this world, which are dwindling fast And so because we have found refuge and protection in Christ, then what a reason, what a motivation we have to not fear, even in the face of tribulation, suffering, and loss. And why? Because Christ is with us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. When Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown into the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fiery furnace? They responded, true, O king, we did. The king then responded back, but I see four men abound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the fourth has the appearance like the son of the gods. Why do we endure the fires of tribulation willingly in this life? We endure because Christ endured the only fire that could ever really hurt us, which was the wrath of God. And because Christ endured that fire for us, that means nothing, even the little fires of this life, can ever harm us. Not tribulation, not suffering, nor even death itself. For no, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so because Christ endured for us, we have the glorious privilege of enduring for him. How? By living for him as we proclaim the gospel message of salvation to the ends of the earth. As Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Because we are not ashamed of the gospel, we proclaim this gospel. How? Well, the text says from the rooftops. We don't shrink back in shame, in fear of what the world might think of us. Lately, I've been reading the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 12, there's a remarkable passage that speaks of those who shared the gospel message of salvation. I want to read it for us. At that time shall arise Michael, the prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such that has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name was found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall what? Shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. You see what this verse is saying, church? Those who turn many to righteousness, which only comes through the gospel message of Jesus, confessing his name, they will shine like the stars forever. What an opportunity we have to confess the saving name of Jesus before a lost and dying world to turn those on the path of destruction to the path of salvation and life is there any greater endeavor that we might live for yesterday we officially launched our new door-to-door outreach ministry and though only few were able to go out afterwards I was able to speak with one couple from our church who came back just beaming about their experience why were they beaming as everyone they talked to loved them and just gave them a hug and said, thank you so much. No, I have close. They were beaming because even though not everyone gave them a warm reception, some did. And being able to show the love of Christ, even to those some who did receive it, brought them a little of that star-like shining early. What an opportunity we have. Let's not miss it. May we as a church live as shining testimonies for the name of Christ before a dark world. Father, I pray for our church. I pray, Lord, that we would be salt and light, that we would be faithful to the mission that you've called us to, and that we would do so out of our great love for you, knowing that we only love you because you first loved us. Father, I pray for the one here today who says, you know, I actually haven't suffered really much of anything for my faith. In fact, outside of being inconvenienced by a few church services, there's not much in my life that could even qualify for inconvenience when it comes to following Jesus. I pray, Lord, that they would hear these words today. That persecution is a part of the plan. It's a necessity of following you. So, Father, I just pray that they would return and look at the gospel, that they would repent, that they would realize that they're not coming to a counselor, that they're not coming to an advisor, to a life coach, but to a king. For when we come to salvation, we aren't just buying fire insurance. We are bowing the knee in repentance to serve a mighty king. And we know that in our flesh and in ourselves, not a single one of us could ever do that. And it is only made possible through your spirit, through your power, by your grace, through faith in us. And so we praise you for the faith you give us. We praise you for the salvation that you cause Father, I just pray for our community around us who doesn't know Christ. I pray that you would bless those who are going on this door-to-door endeavor to bring the gospel light to a dark world. I pray that our church would be bold, that they wouldn't have fear of man, but as the text calls us to today, that they would fear not man who can only destroy the body, but they would fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So we ask that we would fear you rightly, reverently, as a king, for you are worthy of of our reverence and our praise and our devotion. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing our closing song. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And that is the ultimate reason why we can live boldly in the face of persecution, and it's because Emmanuel has come.